Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. For more mainstream, business-focused, and business-friendly lean-in variants, to more radical, critical, and intersectional understandings of feminism, the past decade has seen a flourishing of discussion from those proposing and critiquing different schools of thought for the way we think about gender in society. Dr. Eugenia Cheng's addition to this conversation is X plus Y, a mathematician's manifesto for rethinking gender. She applies insights gained from from her mathematical background to propose a new way to talk about gender and propose an alternative, the terms ingressive and congressive behavior. The book was named one of NPR's best books of 2020 and one of Wired's most fascinating books of the year. Dr. Cheng is a mathematician and concert pianist. She is scientist in residence at the School of Art Institute in Chicago and holds a PhD in pure mathematics from the University of Cambridge. Alongside her research in category theory and undergraduate teaching, her aim is to rid the world of math phobia. She was an early pioneer of math on YouTube, and her videos have been viewed over 15 million times to date. Her other books are How to Bake Pie, featured on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Beyond Infinity, shortlisted for the Royal Society Science Book Prize in 2017, and The Art of Logic in an Illogical World. Today, Dr. Cheng and I talk about what we gain from bringing a mathematical understanding to questions of social relations and structure. We'll talk about how she rethinks gender and the new term she proposes in her book, and we end with a short discussion of whether these insights are applicable to conversations about other demographic and social identifiers. So, Dr. Cheng, thank you so much for joining me today. Perhaps it's best to start with um, a broad question, which is, how does a mathematical background help you to understand social structures and how they operate? Well, hello, and thank you for having me on. I use both my experience as a woman in the male-dominated field of mathematics and also my expertise as a mathematician to think about these questions. And I think it's important to say that math is not just about numbers and equations. So it's not just that I'm looking at statistics and the numbers of women and men in different fields. To me, and in my study of pure mathematics, math is about thinking clearly. It's about looking at relationships between different situations, finding similarities between different situations, spotting patterns that relate different situations so that you can think more clearly through a very complicated world. And that's the part of mathematics that I have used to help me think more clearly about these very complicated, convoluted arguments about gender. So could you maybe talk through some of the mathematical concepts you use in your book? Yes. One of the fundamental ones is my research field, which is category theory. And that is a very abstract branch of mathematics that's really quite new for math. So it's been around uh, for about 50 years or so, or uh, since the middle of the 20th century. And it really shifts our focus to relationships rather than intrinsic characteristics. So before that, there was set theory, where we thought about things being members of sets. And I like to think of this as being like being a member of a club, that you can be there, maybe there's a men's club and a women's club that you can be part of if you satisfy those characteristics. But then In category theory, instead of thinking about 
what something is, we think about how it relates to all the things around it, how it relates to the context it's in. And category theory says that actually we can understand a lot about mathematical objects by looking at their relationships with other mathematical objects. So I say we can understand a lot about people by just looking at how they relate to other people, not necessarily things about what they are inherently, intrinsically, but how they relate to people at work, how they relate to people in the world around them. And I realized that that is a really important dimension that we should be thinking about. And that brings me to another aspect of the mathematics that I use, which is higher dimensional thinking. I'm not just a category theorist, I'm a higher dimensional category theorist. And you might go, what on earth does that mean? Well, dimensions, I think, give us nuance. And so, for example, if we take a photograph of something around us, we are looking at the three-dimensional world, but we're reducing it to a two-dimensional photograph. And it's flat. It's lost some nuance about the situation. Whereas if we put the third dimension back in, we see a lot more. And I think that we have got ourselves stuck in one-dimensional gendered arguments, when really we can invoke a higher dimension to escape from that and, and escape from that one-dimensional trap. So your book's in some ways a, a, a response to some, to some standard arguments that are being made. Um, I think both perhaps both in the realms of academia and organizational culture, but also um, regarding, uh, regarding um, studies of gender relations in general. Um, could you just kind of define what are some of the standard views you're trying to critique or interrogate with your book? Yeah, sure. So it's this one-dimensional trap where we think that there's masculine behavior and feminine behavior, and we, are, we associate behavior with gender. And then we proceed to overvalue the behaviors associated with men and undervalue the behaviors associated with women. And then we look at the world around us and we might go, why are men more successful currently in the world around us? Well, maybe it's because they have these particular characteristics associated with men, like confidence and ambition and, and competitiveness. And then there are two ways that we can go. We can either say um, those differences are biological. They're definitely, they're biologically determined and innate, and therefore women can never hope to be as successful as men. That's one argument, which I would like to say immediately I do not agree with. But then there's another argument which says that is not biologically innate, and therefore in order to be successful, women should learn to be more like men. And I don't agree with that either. And the thing is that I think that, that thinking about behavior in terms of gender, associating with gender, is just the wrong way to start. And that what we should do instead is separate character and behavior from gender. Those are two separate dimensions. And then think separately about which behaviors and character types we actually value in society. And I think we've been valuing the wrong ones for a really long time. And that the reason that people with those traditionally masculine character types are more successful is because we've set up systems that reward that kind of behavior. And so it's very cyclic. And I think we can break out of it by using this new dimension and saying, actually, which character types do we want to value? And then nurture and value those ones instead. So maybe let's, I one, one note that I'm going to make in, in your answer just now is you said behaviors associated with men and, and associated with, with women, obviously you're not um, which I think is a very important use 
or, or important way that you phrase that. Because as you said, one of your goals is to, um, let's say, take gender out of the way we talk about differences in behavior. Um, maybe could you go into some of the some of the insights you gain, go a little bit deeper into what what you learn by making that shift. Well, it really started with my own story. I've had a slightly unusual academic career. It started as a very normal academic career where I did my PhD, and then I tried to get a postdoctoral position in the most prestigious place possible. And I moved around the world several times to show how prestigious I was. And then I won that, that thing that everyone's trying to get, which is a tenured, a permanent tenured academic job. And all the time I was doing that, I thought it was important to hide all signs of femininity so that nobody would have a chance to stereotype me and say that I wasn't good enough because I was a woman. And then when I finally achieved tenure and felt more stable, I wanted to kind of get in touch with my feminine side, but I only did it outside work because I was too nervous to do that at work. So then for a while, I had this odd split life where I showed some femininity outside work, but not at work. And then I wanted to unite those things. So I tried to bring some femininity to my work and I couldn't, I discovered it didn't work um, and that I, I, I hated my job. I didn't like the kind of person I was becoming in that job. And so I left. And it's a slightly longer story than that, really. But that's basically what happened. And it took me several years after getting out of that situation to realize that none of that story really makes any sense because I am a female. I identify as a female person. So everything I do is feminine. And yet we call some things masculine and we call some things feminine. And there is definitely something I meant by that story. It's just that the words didn't make sense. So now I've introduced new words. I realized that we need new words to describe those kinds of behaviors and character types, but ungendered words so that we can think of them separately from gender, rather than either making it sound like women are doing something wrong if they're behaving in a masculine way, and also making it sound like men are doing something wrong if they behave in a feminine way. So the, those gendered words are bad for men and women, and they also erase non-binary people. And so I think that we can all be liberated from those pressures. And the words that I introduce do not have gender associated with them so that we don't have to say the character types uh, traditionally associated with men. And then we get stuck saying things like, oh, but not all men are like that. And these are the character types associated with women and not all women are like that. And if we keep associating them with gender, then we also get a backlash from some women who say, but I like being feminine and some men who defend masculinity, or then we get the idea of toxic masculinity where men fight back saying, it's a war on masculinity. So I just think we should separate that out from gender completely, which is why in introducing these new words, I liberated my brain from those traps and was able to see my whole life differently and then see my teaching differently and see everything I do differently so that I can really aim to change my behavior in a way that I believe in rather than worrying about whether I'm being more like a man or more like a woman and what that means. So the, using this new terminology really liberated me and, and my students tell, tell me that it has really helped them think differently about their mathematical life, their art life, their student life as well. So there's a lot in that answer I want to, I want to touch on. Um, so I'm, as you were talking, I'm, I'm, I was hurriedly reordering my order of questions. Um, but let's perhaps start with the, with the two terms your book proposes mm -hmm. as a replacement. 
um, ingressive, uh, ingressive and congressive. Could you go into a bit more detail about what you mean by these terms? Yeah. And let's and, and let's say that if if you were an individual in in society at work, you were talking with or working with someone, what traits would you look for to determine whether they were whether the person you were working with was one or the other? Well, first of all, I'd like to stress that I don't think I'm not trying to classify people into one or the other. I'm not saying that this fixes people as one or the other. I think that behavior comes out more ingressive or congressive, and I'll say what that means in a moment, but we can all change, and it's not something fixed, and it's definitely not biological, and it can change from moment to moment and across our lives. So I picked those words after a lot of brainstorming with my dear friend, Gregory, who helped me come up with words that, that had some slight etymological connection. So I wanted, I, for ingressive, that to me signifies going into things, um, without worrying too much about the people around you. So it's about being an individualistic kind of person, thinking about yourself rather than the community. And congressive is about, about bringing things together, bringing people together. It's about thinking about the community around you rather than yourself as an individual. And so when I'm interacting with people, I think about whether the interaction has an individualistic aspect about it. Is everyone out to, for themselves? Is everyone out to show how great they are? Is everyone out to, to establish their superiority over the other person? Um, is it a competitive situation? You know, there are some discussions where everyone is just trying to show they're right. And in order to show you they're right, they have to prove that everyone else is wrong. That kind of thing is ingressive, whereas a congressive interaction is more collaborative. It's nurturing. It's more empathetic. It's more about building mutual understanding rather than trying to show that someone is superior. And it's more about bringing people along with you rather than trying to establish a hierarchy over them. So one thing you mentioned in, in your previous answer was um, your experience kind of teaching, teaching especially more recently, um, teaching math to let's call them non non-math students. Mm -hmm. um, and in your book, you've talked about how that's helped you to explore more congressive behaviors, more congressive styles of teaching. Um, I wonder, I guess, if you can go into more detail about that and what you learned from teaching math to students who would not normally be considered uh, interested in math. Mm -hmm. Yes. I've had a very wide range of teaching experiences. I would dare to say an unusually wide range because I've taught graduate students and undergraduates at extremely prestigious research universities. And I've also helped in schools for at all ages, from, from the ages of five up to 18, all the way through. And I do a lot of public talks to adults who might not feel that math is for them. And now I teach undergraduates at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is an art school. It's hard to say that clearly. It's not an arts school. It is an art school. So everybody there is studying fine arts, basically. And as you say, most of them do not typically consider themselves to be math people. M most of them were really put off math in school. And in fact, many of them uh, come from Asia and tell me that it was particularly the Asian education system that put them off math and that made them flee to go to art school in America because they felt that at home in Asia, the only thing that was valued was getting the right answers in math and they couldn't stand it. And what I found was that when I was teaching at places like the University of Cambridge and the University of Chicago, 
those math classes were people who had been very successful in high school math, and it was very male-dominated. Surprise! Whereas in art school, it was people who had been put off math in school, and it was very female-dominated. Now, I absolutely do not think, and there is no evidence that there's a biologically innate difference between men's and women's abilities in math, but I do think that the way we present math in high school is typically extremely ingressive. Whereas math at higher levels is actually very congressive. That, that, that research math and the kind of math that involves finding, comparing different situations and building structures, that's the kind of math I love. And I was very put off by ingressive math in school as well. But I managed to get through it just because I knew there was something else out there at the end. But if I hadn't known, then I would have just been put off it. All that memorizing speed tests, trying to get the highest scores in exams. I mean, it's true that in school, I was quite good at doing well in exams. But when I got to university, I wasn't, I really, really struggled. And I was surrounded by male students who were very sure of their abilities, boasted about how easy they found it all the time. And I had to sweat blood to get through those exams. But then when I started research, I turned out to be much better at it than I had ever been at exams because it was less about speed and about getting the right answer. And it was more about seeing, seeing connections between things and uncovering structures. And I think that we use ingressive filters to filter people out of mathematics all the way through school. And that as a result, we're putting off people who could really appreciate a more congressive form of mathematics. And not only is that sad because we're putting people off, but it's even sadder because we're putting people off for the wrong reasons. It's not, even, it's not even a realistic vision of math that we're showing them when we show them ingressive math. We're showing them something that, that is really not real math at all. And moreover, I think that it is contributing to gender imbalances because up, up until now, I think, women have been more have had more tendency to be congressive but of course it's not just women it's not just girls and it's not just boys but in those competitive environments it is often girls who shy away from them and would would rather do something that is more collaborative where there isn't such a notion of right and wrong and so now with this new terminology we can say well how can we present math in a more congressive way and previously we would have had to say how can we present math in a way that appeals to girls which sounds really stupid, and it is really stupid, and it gives rise to things like pink Lego or Barbie dolls with wearing math t-shirts, which isn't the point at all. Whereas if we show math as something that's collaborative and that's a process of discovery rather than a, a process of failing exams, then I think that we have, we have the opportunity to do a more inclusive form of mathematics. It's... It's interesting because I think a lot of what you're saying is applicable to other subjects, other departments, other parts of academia. Um, the like a couple things come to mind. First of all, is the obvious um, the the same struggles that say computer science departments in the United States have about mm -hmm. about um, about being very male dominated. There are many reasons proposed for this. One of them being, I think, one that I read was uh, boys are encouraged to play with computers at a young age, and so they have a better foundation of knowledge when they go to computer science courses and then scare off all the, mm -hmm. all the female students. Um, so there's, and which leads to all the same things you know about much as you talked about pink Lego and, 
and math teacher Barbies. There's also, again, coding for girls and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that, that, that popped up as you were speaking was when, when you talk about how the way, we, the way we evaluate students tends to be very ingressive, but then when you reach the higher levels of, of academia, the process of research and writing is very, is very congressive. Um, and you, I think you can see that leading to a lot of the, lot of the issues we see in, especially I think elite academia, you know, thinking about like superstar professors, um, the drive to get published and to have as many citations as possible, Mm -hmm. the need to get a, a superstar paper or book out, um, yeah, I guess I guess it's it's fascinating because I, I see a lot of the parallels with other departments, other other parts of academia, not just mathematics. Yes, and it's not just academia either. It's all walks of life. I think I think all walks of life have been filtering for ingressive behavior, even when congressive behavior is better. For example, in dare I say it, politics, election campaigns are extremely ingressive ingressive. It's all about winning votes. It's about posturing and making speeches. Whereas actually running a country is or ought to be rather congressive. It ought to be about bringing people together and, and unifying and, and, and collaborating and getting the best out of people. And the same with, say, job applications for promotion, where to get promotion, you have to put yourself forward and talk about how great you are and beat other people out. Whereas if you're going to be a good manager and leader, for example, then I think that's much more congressive because it's about, again, it's about getting the best out of a team of people. And even in fields that are inherently so congressive, like music, I think that that has become extremely ingressive because it becomes all about winning competitions and winning auditions and standing up on stage and under a lot of pressure and withstanding the stare of critics who are out to take you down. And um, it's, it's about who can then sell loads of copies of a recording and who makes tons of money out of it. And so I think there are, there are many walks of life where it should be inherently congressive, and yet we have imposed all these ingressive filters on it. And as a result, everyone is under pressure to become as ingressive as possible in order to be successful. Um. I have one more question about about the book, and then I think I want to expand to 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 other to to make to make some comparisons to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like your the way your book is positioned, I think, adds a very a very useful way of thinking about these kinds of questions, which is um, you know let, let's let's call it the 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 default position that we should hold that must be that 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 must be disproven, whether by you know evidence statistics or or by or by logical thinking mm-hmm. um, it seems like uh, the standard view that, that that your book that that your book has is that uh, there are no differences between genders um, and that and that and that any differences you see you have to show whether by logic or by or by evidence that this difference is caused by gender and not by some other social factor etc yet it seems like many people have the opposite view. Mm. Um, whether stated or unstated, that there are differences, and the burden of proof should be those on those who say they are the same. Um, I mean, obviously, this this comes up in sports. Uh, uh, this comes up probably, as you know, you're reacting to views in academia that that are views that say that men are better than women in math, and this is somehow innate. Um, I guess, I guess, what do you think about about that kind of reframing, or not that that kind of understanding of what your book is is trying to argue? Well, I think that. What I'm trying to do is highlight a fundamental 
bias in the system already. That whatever you take as your null hypothesis is already a bias that you're embedding in the system. Mm. And we've taken the bias one way around for such a long time. But what I really want to emphasize about my new dimension is that we can sidestep all of those arguments because we're not even trying to decide anymore whether there are biological differences or not. And we're not trying to decide where the differences come from. We're just looking at behavior and saying, well, this is ingressive behavior that's not helpful to society. I would like to have more congressive behavior. And everybody can learn congressive behavior. And everyone can then try and become more congressive where previously we've all tried to become ingressive. And there may still be differences. There are some differences. There's a huge table of differences between men and women that um, are largely physical things like upper body strength and throwing distance. Those are the most measurably different things. And maybe, maybe there are some other differences, but we don't need to know in advance whether differences are biological or not. We can just look at someone and we can say, well, are we evaluating someone's ability in the right way or are we evaluating it for something that's irrelevant? So, for example, if we, if we think that self-confidence and ambition are really important, then we will find self-confident people and think that they're going to be better at things. But we can reevaluate that and take a step back and go, wait a minute, uh, congressive people tend to, I think, tend to be self-doubting and need a lot of validation from the world around them. And actually, I think that that's better. It makes for better mathematicians because they check their work better. It makes for better, I think it could make for better politicians because they listen to the people around them and they listen to the voters. I think it makes for better, I would much rather work with someone who doubts themselves because then they won't um, make flying leaps or be really arrogant about what they're doing but they will keep testing themselves and keep trying to get better. And I think that there are so many assumptions that we have built in about what to value, that if we just stop trying to associate it with men and women, then it can free us up to think about what we really should be valuing instead. So I want to now make a comparison to the way that people talk about race, which I know is itself a very... Mm -hmm. In fact, probably certainly much more contested term than even gender is. But it's but it's both similar and different to the way people talk about gender, at least as presented in your book. In in one sense, I think uh, most right-minded academics would say that there are no differences in behavior than uh, that 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 depend on race. There's extreme skepticism of anyone that would make that claim, uh, mm -hmm. quite rightly so. Yeah. Um, of course, that's a recent phenomenon, and it's not one matched in a lot of popular discourse. I think, as we both know, many people in practice will use um, shortcuts, assumptions, stereotypes mm -hmm. based on race or ethnicity yeah. to to make judgments. Um, so, so with that in mind, how do you see a discussion of race maybe differing from the way we talk about gender? Well, I think it's important in both cases to say that I'm not saying that we should ignore those things. Maybe one day, in if we ever, ever reach utopia, then we would be able to just look at everyone as a person and not think about any of these identities. But we're definitely not there yet. So I'm definitely not saying that we should be gender blind. And I'm definitely not saying we should be race blind either. Because that would not enable us to correct the previous injustices against oppressed genders and oppressed races. And while there is still direct discrimination against some genders and some races, 
we need to take race and gender into account in order to overturn those injustices. But I think there is something interesting about thinking about character instead of just thinking about those identities because of the types of prejudices that people associate with different races. And I think I, I am based in the US at the moment, and it's important to note that there is racism against all kinds of non-white people, but it's a very different kind of racism. And in a way, I mean, I think it's important for me as an Asian person to acknowledge that it is much worse for black people, that the racism against black people is much more life-threatening to them. And I think it comes from what the stereotypes about black people are, the, the wrong stereotypes, as opposed to what the stereotypes about Asians are, which is, it does come down to character again, because the stereotypes that bigoted people have against black people is that they are dangerous and stupid, that they are criminals, um, that they're people to be afraid of. Whereas the stereotypes that people have about Asian people is that they are passive and quiet and demure, they're a model minority, they're hardworking, and that if anything, they they um, are overrepresented in certain high-paying jobs. And it's always it's always belittling and dehumanizing to have stereotypes about a whole race of people as if they're all the same as each other. But it is definitely more life-threatening to those people if they are feared so that uh, it then becomes embedded in society, in white society, to that white society decides it needs to protect itself against those people, which means it can it can defend itself against them in disproportionate ways. And so I think those conversations can be very difficult. And I want to acknowledge that the Asian community is is sometimes very bad about that. And they're sometimes very bad about the racism against black people because they're so focused on their own misfortunes and that they don't see how much worse it is for black people. And I think this is in turn embedded in how the the country was built up in the first place, where where black people were enslaved and forced to come to America against their will. Where for Asians, it was really the opposite, that they were kept out, that they were not allowed to come here. And so there's these opposite forces coming in all the time that then turn into opposite character stereotypes. And I... I, I think it, it's very tricky having these conversations, but it's really important that we have them because because otherwise the status quo gets maintained and people carry on being oppressed. Mm-hmm. And 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 I would like to to note for those listening, we are we are recording this um, literally the day after the uh, the the shootings in Atlanta, which we don't quite know all the facts yet, but it does look like there's a decent chance it was. Um, racially motivated. So and and so I, this is going to be a and a bit of an, I'm going to try and segue into talking about a bit more about um, prejudices against against Asians, whether Asian Americans, British Asians like yourself, or even just Asians in general. Um, we we talked a little bit about the about the the positive positive stereotypes is a, is a weird word too. Yes. Um, but uh, as you said, the the views that that Asians are demure, they're passive, um, they're you know quote unquote very good at math. Mm-hmm. High-performing students. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the 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 there are also plenty of let let's say much more even more dehumanizing stereotypes, especially around Asian women. I think yeah. I'm not going to get into those because it's best to let people who who study this get into that. Um, but I guess 
kind of looking specifically at at the stereotypes around the Asian community, whether in the West or elsewhere, maybe like how would you then apply some of the framings you pioneer in your book to to these sort to, to this sort of analysis? Um, I I think that that would be a separate book, um, mm. and I haven't fully thought through what we could do there. But I do think that that the character types that we associate with people, if we can separate character types from those identities and then think about what we value, then that could be illuminating. Of course, it could just be, it could just be another opportunity for people to impose prejudices uh, without looking like they're racially doing it. And so, for example, I think that there was a recent incident with a famous university in the US that appeared to be discriminating against Asians but not by saying they're Asian, but by, by assessing their characters in the university admissions process and assessing them all as not, not having good leadership qualities or something like that. I, uh, I may have slightly misrepresented or misquoted, but it was something like that they didn't have good leadership qualities. And the thing is that if a, if a bunch of white people aren't used to seeing Asians as leaders, then they will look at an Asian and automatically think they don't have good leadership qualities because they're Asian. And so that's a form of racial discrimination that they're building in under the guise of assessing someone's character. Um, and I think that we need to be very careful about that. So one, one final question. Um, and yeah, one, one final question. How, does, how has the pandemic, I think, changed your view on social structures? whether around the idea of gender or around your framing of congressive and ingressive behaviors? Oh, it's really reinforced what I think about society. That, and I see this, the differences in behavior all the time, all around, between ingressive people who think that the whole point is to protect themselves and that it's up to them what they do to protect themselves. So they think that, that no one has a right to force them to wear a mask. It's their decision. It's about risk-taking for themselves. And they don't in any way see that they're part of a community and that the community needs to act in order to protect the community. Whereas congressive behavior is about looking at the community and saying, well, I'm not that at risk, but I could pass it on to somebody who is at risk. And it's not about protecting myself. It's about protecting the community. And I have been heartened to see measures such as money being paid to people because uh, they haven't been able to go to work, and that something almost like a universal income, I mean, not anywhere close to it, but payments just being made to everybody to help them through this is something that's more supportive than I could have imagined from uh, this society recently, whereas some people think that everyone should look after themselves and that no one should ever get help from anyone else because it's your responsibility to look after yourself. And I think it has thrown into sharp relief the the different approaches to politics and that that the biggest political differences I think come from whether one is motivated by ingressive tendencies or congressive tendencies. And there was a, a lot of attention drawn to the fact that some of the best responses around the world were from countries with women as leaders. And then there were some questions about whether there was some kind of female leadership style. And one answer was that the societies that have even been able to elect a woman as a leader must be a slightly different kind of society. And I would say that it's a more congressive society 
that it's often places where rather than having a direct ingressive election of a of a president, it's somebody who comes up through the the party who becomes the leader of the party and then is elected by the people around them. And that then those leaders, it wasn't just that they were women, but I would say that they had a more congressive leadership style where they didn't just posture and think that they could posture a virus away, but they actually listened to the people around them and listened to the experts and didn't assume that that they know best. So in summary, I think that we it really showed, it illuminated to me that that the ingressive and congressive behaviors really are at the root of many of our differences. And that if we think in those terms, I think we can understand the world around us better and gradually work to build a more congressive world, which I think will be better for everybody. Thank you for listening to our interview with Dr. Eugenia Chang, author of X Plus Y, A Mathematician's Manifesto for Rethinking Gender. Dr. Chang, one actual last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's next for you, and where can people find your work? Oh, well, um, my website is www.eugeniacheng.com, and my first children's book is out in the UK, and it's just about to come out in the US and in other places in the world, I believe, and that's called Molly and the Mathematical Mystery. And it's to introduce a mysterious world of math to children that isn't just about numbers and equations, but it's about weird things happening in your imagination. And I believe that there's a a Chinese translation that's coming out in China. I can't remember what other translate. I think there's a Japanese translation that's coming out as well. So I'm really excited about that. It's got beautiful illustrations and wonderful paper engineering to show what I think is a more congressive form of math for children. And I have a number of other book projects coming up. uh, So watch that space. I will. I will be watching that space. Um, You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you subscribe to our podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Timon Screech, author of Tokyo Before Tokyo, Power and Magic in the Shogun City of Edo. But before then, thank you, Dr. Cheng, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me.